Father, we want to be courageous. We have nothing to fear in your presence. Perfect love casts out all fear. And we thank you today, God, that we're accepted. We can risk because underneath everything are the everlasting arms of God. Lord, I know that today I'm risking. Who am I? A man with mortal, flawed lips speaking on behalf of the Almighty. Teaching the timeless, eternal Word of God. Yet, Lord, it was in your wisdom that it would be through this foolish means of men and women opening their mouths to proclaim Christ. So here I am, Lord, risking. Here we are, Lord, risking. Vulnerable, yearning for help because of our weakness, because our hearts are filled with all sorts of uncertainties, anxieties, guilt, fear that can only be resolved with Christ. So we step one step closer toward him today, asking that for us here in the States and all around the world, for our brothers and sisters in even more difficult places, far more, would you minister grace that's unique to this day that we've never experienced, that we will see Jesus and his possibilities that he has for us individually and corporately. Bring the lost to Christ and bring the saved to maturity and bring us all to see your face. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Do you know what I love about the New Testament? Over and over again, God makes the impossible possible. The sun stops in midair and doesn't go to sundown so Joshua can keep fighting. A Red Sea parts and so a group of refugees can escape the cruel Egyptian army. And then a 90-year-old woman who's never had a child has her first child. That's the thrill of following God is the impossible becomes possible. Nowhere is this more evident than in the creation of the church in the first century. A group of people who had nothing in common all of a sudden were bound together in the journey of a lifetime. This is how Paul described it. I'm sure this is how Paul described it. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. When you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The unity of the church is an amazing thing when you think about who Paul is writing to. Apart from Jesus Christ, these people have nothing in common. Think about the early church. Who is in this room that he's writing to? You have Pharisees sitting next to philosophers. Carpenters sitting next to gladiators, Greeks sitting next to Jews, tax collectors sitting next to fishermen, and servants sitting next to the landowners where they served. Many scholars believe that this, these verses in Ephesians chapter 4 are one of the first hymns, glorious hymns of the 
early church. Seven times in one fact, and seven times in one passage, Paul says these are the essentials of unity, things that we have in the church that bind us together that cause the world to be apart. Seven supernatural realities. So we're going to look at six of them today, one of them next week. And if you don't mind, I want to reverse the order of the six. I want to look first at Ephesians 4 and look at verse 5, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. When Paul called Jesus Lord, what we have in common is one Lord. It was one of his favorite terms for Jesus Christ. When the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek so Greek people could read the Old Testament, the Old Testament word for God, Jehovah, was translated by the Greek word kurios. And so anytime Paul uses the word kurios for Jesus, he is saying that man is equivalent to the Old Testament Jehovah God. And he does it for a couple reasons. First, he wants the world to understand there has never been a time in history where God walked on earth as a man except as he did in Jesus Christ. And the second reason is related. No one is worthy of worship except the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the one that binds all of our dreams and hurts, aspirations, and failures together and makes us one. The Christians, in order to call Jesus Lord, did so often at risk of life because they were saying, nope, Caesar, president, governor, King Caesar is not head of the world. Jesus Christ is ruler of all. And it cost them their life to say that. If any person, any activity, any cause becomes more precious to you and more important to you than the worship of Jesus Christ, then you will not experience unity. You'll experience em emptiness and enmity even worse. As one writer said this week, without Christ, every viewpoint is dangerous. He's the one that allows us to have courageous conversations because we're seeking the will of Jesus Christ above all other things. A massive fixation upon the beauty of Jesus Christ is needed more than ever if we will engage in conversations with each other. If not, the whole thing just erodes into massive disunity. The church of Corinth, the whole book of 1 Corinthians was written because of disunity in the church. Toward the end of the book, Paul was discussing the Lord's Supper. You can't believe you have to make this, you almost feel like you have to make this stuff up. In the church at Corinth, when they came together for the Lord's Supper, some people saw it as a, as a picnic and brought large amounts of food and large amounts of wine. And they were eating while the poor in the church had nothing to eat. And they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And Paul said, you've lost sight of what this meal is about. And you're causing disunity between the rich and the poor over the Lord's Supper. And so he said, I want to remind you of what that meal is about. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I passed unto you, the Lord Jesus, on the night 
He was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. All discussions about unity will fall short if we don't start with a focused fascination and fixation on the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I, I read an interesting uh, letter, a blog this week by Lig Duncan. He's one of our favorite go-to teachers. Dan and I love him. A lot of folks, a lot of elders in the church love him. He's a professor in, in Mississippi. He grew up half his life in Mississippi. And so much of his roots and so much of his fascination, so much of his appreciation for family is related to the Confederacy. has a deep appreciation for the Confederacy because it meant so much to his family. But he also realizes that half of the citizens of Mississippi are offended and deeply hurt by the Confederate flag that flies above the Mississippi State House. So he wrote a letter to the legislature asking them to take the Confederate flag down. He said, not because it, it, it hurt my walk with God, but because he says, Jesus is Lord, and he calls us to do hard things. So even though the Confederacy was dear to members of my family far back, it was offensive to my neighbors. And so he said, I made the decision based on one verse, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Because he's Lord. There's one Lord. And when the Lord says, this is going to hurt the hearts of your neighbors, think about your neighbors more than yourself. If he's Lord. You know, a woman came to Robert E. Lee. You can read it in that article. June 23rd on the Gospel Coalition. Beg you to read it. And in that article, it talks about a woman came to Lee and asked Robert E. Lee, generally when said, said, I would like for you to give a blessing to my child. And he simply responded to her, teach your child to deny himself. One Lord. Unity will never occur until men hate their sin and love the beauty of Christ's grace shown to them at the cross. The second component of unity in Ephesians 4 is that of faith, one faith. When the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about the set of beliefs, the set of those, even though there might be some things in the Bible that are not clear, those wonderfully clear realities about Jesus Christ that bind us. And if we disagree on these essential things, we can never have unity. These are the things that bind every believer together. Jesus was God, but confined himself to a human body. Application. He laid his privileges down in order to lift us up. Second essential of the faith. He was tempted more than all people, yet never sinned. Application. He showed us that to love others fully, I must love God supremely. Third, essential of the faith. He died voluntarily as a sacrifice for our sin. Application. He died to forgive his enemies, not judge them. 
Fourth essential of the faith. He rose from the dead, lives in heaven, is returning to earth. Application. A day is coming when Christ will deal perfectly with every injustice in history. No one has ever lived like Jesus Christ. He is the path to God, the bridge to heaven. Man can do nothing and bring nothing that would ever qualify him to walk on that bridge. Jesus alone is the truth, the way, and the life. And this is the faith that has bound the church together for 21 centuries. But, Paul goes on, make sure that we don't get confused and say, if I have academic faith, I have faith. Nope, it is a living faith. That's what Paul says, it's not just, not just the unifi- unification of one faith, but he says it's one faith and one baptism. When a man or a woman came to Christ in the New Testament, they came, after they placed their faith in Christ, they experienced baptism. They were, they entered into water. They were immersed in water as a symbol that they were immersing themselves in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> they didn't just believe. Faith is not just believing 10 things about Jesus. It is immersing yourself with all of you, all that you are, into all that he is. Faith is an immersion. That's why the Bible says we have been, by the Spirit, baptized into the body of Christ, immersed. We interact with Jesus. His life is our life. And that baptism into Jesus causes us to become one body. The Spirit baptizes us through Christ and blends us into one body. The church is called in the New Testament by a lot of different names. It could be a kingdom, a temple, a family, and other terms. Here, the church is called a body in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says what makes us a body is our connection. What makes us a unified body is a connection to one head. <clears throat> Colossians 1.18, he, Christ, is also head of the body, the church. So this morning, because I am connected to the head, Jesus, I am likewise connected to every believer in the world who's part of his body. Therefore, if one believer in this church, in this city, in a village in India suffers, I suffer. I enter into their suffering. If one rejoices, I enter into their rejoicing. The Bible goes on to say, because we're members of one body, Whenever you reach out to any part of that body, no matter who they are, where they are, whenever you help them and hold them and heal them, whatever act of kindness you show to them, you have shown it to the body of Christ himself. I don't know if there's a greater motivation for body involvement, member to member, than this radical statement made by Jesus Christ 
Matthew 25, 40, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. If you're attached to Jesus, you're attached to everyone who's attached to Jesus. What does that mean? It means I'm not complete. I don't have a full understanding of the Lord. I've not discovered all of his beauty. There are joys yet to be accessed and experienced as I get to know God through the expression of his character through other members of the body. I need you to complete me. I need people from other educational backgrounds. I need people from other financial backgrounds. I need people from other ethnic backgrounds. I need to see God and the experience of salvation through their eyes, the experience of suffering through their eyes, if I will be complete in my understanding of the grace of God. And that's why we encourage and are ever encouraging. And that's why these courageous conversations on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock are so good and helpful and healing for us that we can dare to get to know someone who is different than us, but part of us, part of the same body, yet so different, and see the grace of God and the trials of the world through the eyes of, of another. A fifth component of unity is the Holy Spirit. There is one body, Ephesians 4, 4, and there is one spirit. This is a reminder that our unity is supernatural. You don't love God apart from the Spirit. You hate God apart from the Spirit. You resist Him. You ignore Him. You belittle Him apart from the Spirit. You don't love one another. You don't love people that are unlike you apart from the supernatural work of the Spirit. At some place in your life, you have probably heard the phrase, the Imago Dei. It's pretty popular right now. It talks about the things that bind us together on this planet. It means that we're made in the image of God. Unlike all animals and insect, sea creatures, land creatures, man is different than everything else God created. He was created the Imago Dei in the image of God. And that is, man is created with the ability to know that there is a God and to know the values of God. A man is created, because he's created in the, in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, man is created by God. He's to live out the image of God by living certain values in this world. That is how we achieve our destiny in this world, by living according to the Imago Dei. And I apologize for every theologian in the world for me taking a doctoral thesis and explaining it in two minutes. But that's the thing is, Every man has a God-given destiny to live out the Imago Dei on earth. And that's why every man on earth is equal in value. Because every man is created by God with a destiny. And we value every man and every woman, every child as equal 
because they're created in the Imago Dei. That's what binds us together as citizens on the planet, but that is not what binds us together in the church. It's that and. What binds us together in the church is the Spirit of God, the supernatural love that the Spirit gives to us. The Imago Dei, the image of God within us is marred, messed up, skewed, semi-destroyed. And God comes and causes his spirit to enter into our bodies and bring us to life, taking our sins off of our body, transferring to the cross of Christ, replacing our sins with the righteousness of Jesus, and we begin to live out a new life by the Spirit of God that now lives in us, and that is what binds us together beyond the Imago Dei. We're bound together by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I love about the church New people always coming in. And when you meet them, almost like Mary and Elizabeth in, in, in Luke chapter 2, when the baby leapt in her womb when she saw Christ, when two believers who are getting to know each other and the Spirit of God in one senses the Spirit of God in another, a unity is quickly and over time deeply established. As you cherish the work of Christ, the work of grace, the work of redemption, the work of forgiveness that's been done in another brother or sister, likewise, it's been done in you. Living by the power of the Spirit is the thing that makes the supernatural love of the church so special. I um, was watching this week a, a story Steve Hartman is the CBS reporter. I forgot exactly what, uh, <clears throat> what, his, um, what his show, what his special is called. I know somebody on the back row knows that. You're not going to yell that out, are you? Forgot. But it's Steve Hartman, something like Journey Across America, something, whatever. Yeah, but Steve Hartman does all these little specials. He did a special, and they aired it this week, a precious story. It takes place in the town of Benton Harbor, Michigan. Jamal McGee in 2005, was arrested by the officer to the right, Andrew Collins, for dealing drugs. Despite his claim for innocence, he was sentenced to four years in prison. While he was serving his prison sentence, the arresting officer, Andrew Collins, was also arrested for stealing, planting drugs, and filing multiple false police reports, including the one against Jamal McGee. Obviously, Jamal McGee, at that very point of the arrest and the conviction, was exonerated and released. Benton Harbor is not a big town. <clears throat> after he was released from prison, and after Andrew Collins, who served time for his crime, also was released from prison, they ended back up together in the same town. Not just the same town, but they also by the providence of God, began working at a place called Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency. <clears throat> and in that small kitchen 
where they were both forced to interact with each other. One day, officer, former Officer Collins came to Jamal McGee and said, I have no explanations to say to, say to you except I'm sorry. And that's all Jamal needed to hear. Not only did they become good friends, but they began doing life together outside of work. They walked together in life, lived together in life, talked together about all issues of life. And one day, Jamal came to Andrew and said, I just need to tell you something. I love you. Andrew's response is, he didn't know me that, and I didn't deserve anything to hear that. When CBS reporter Steve Hartman asked Jamal if he'd ever... If he did that for the sake of Andrew or did it for the sake of himself, he said, neither. I did it for the sake of us. He said, and not just us in this restaurant, but us in this country. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit does. Jamal later told Steve Hartman, it is my faith in Jesus Christ that gives me the ability to love and forgive in this manner. The power of the Holy Spirit to produce oneness is immeasurable. You can always tell when the Holy Spirit is at work within a church because he produces this beautiful like-mindedness, like-heartedness. There's a phrase in the book of Acts, homo thumadon, which means of the same mind and of the same heart. It's used 11 times in the book of Acts that the church was in Homo thumadon, like-hearted, like-minded. And every time it's used, like-minded, like-hearted believers coming together, interesting, the power of the Holy Spirit was released. Acts chapter 4, great example. When they heard this, this was a threat against the church from civil authorities. When they heard this, they raised their voices together, homo thumadon, in prayer to God. What happened? By coming together, homo thumadon, one heart, one mind. The place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The strategy of the enemy, Satan, in our day, is destroy the homo thumadon of the church. So the Holy Spirit will be left out of our plans and out of our mission. And when the church no longer operates with one heart and mind, the efforts of our body will be without the Spirit's power. So now we come to layer number six in the things that bind us together as a church, and that is our one hope. More than ever in this country, people are asking, is there any hope? If you've not been asking that question lately, I, you, you must have found an alternate planet to live on. Because right now, this planet looks sort of hopeless because of two realities. The world is fragile, and people are depraved. That, those realities, produce a current sense of hopelessness in the world I say the world is fragile because think about the United States right now. We live in a country, the United States, obviously the most blessed nation that's ever lived, 
overflowing with brilliant scientists, engineers, and doctors, all of whom have significant access to significant amounts of money, manpower, and machines. And we cannot harness right now all of that to stop a germ. I went to a furniture store recently. I was looking for a swivel rocker for my, my daughter to rock her baby. The store, the inventory is half I'd ever seen. I talked to the owner. She said, business is good, but we have no pipeline to replace what we're selling. If the virus spikes again, I will have nothing to sell. When I hear stories like this, and I do frequently from business owners, I just wonder how in the world as a nation do we think we can ever do anything without God? You would have thought we would have learned this in March and April. God, we need you. Without his mercy to stop this virus, all he would have to do is lift his restraint and it returns, and the economy is sunk within a matter of months, if not weeks. America, church, kneel, please, before God and ask for his mercy for help again in regard to COVID-19. So the first thing you see when you take a look at the world is the world, the earth, is immeasurably fragile. The second thing that you look that can cause grief and a sense of hopelessness is mankind is immeasurably depraved. Depravity can be explained by this, defined like this. When the Imago Dei, the image of God within us, is so damaged that our mind begins to make decisions with no standard of right and wrong, except what feels good for us at a certain moment. At that point, a man's body begins to make decisions without any moral restraint. Truth is replaced by deceit. Love is replaced by hate. Generosity is replaced by greed. Wisdom is replaced by foolishness. And peace is replaced by war. In regard to our present racial tension, let me show you how this has played out over several centuries of the depravity of man. There was a time in our country when a large segment of our population living here, working here, having families here, were not considered people, but property. They were called slaves. They were greatly responsible for the financial strength of the country, yet they were not permitted to become citizens of the nation. There was so much confusion about whether this was right or wrong that we decided to go to war over that issue, and it cost us 700,000 lives. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of hopelessness. Through the years, progress was made in saying black men and black women were made in the image of God and were equal 
to white men and white women. From the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation through the Civil Rights Movement, progress was made. But because of human depravity, progress was hindered by racism in the human heart. That despite what the law said on the surface, underneath the surface, depraved humans within this country found ways to still oppress black men and black women. And this type of oppression will never be stopped until moms and dads in their homes talk with their sons and daughters and tell them this oppression is anti-God, anti-Christ, and must stop. Those conversations are the key to the ending of racism. It begins in your heart and my heart and our homes. Tragically, there have been times in this country when oppression actually occurred through the abuse of a police officer, such as I told, I showed you in the story earlier. Though it does not represent the majority of the dear men and women of law enforcement, who, unlike you and me, when we put on our clothes or our suit to go to work every day, these dear men and women put on a bulletproof vest to go to work. So we love the fact the majority are dear and near to our hearts. But depravity does exist within a few, and when it does, it mars the image of the many. And when that marring of that image occurs, as it did several weeks ago in this country, depraved people looking for opportunistic reasons to be violent made a plan, engaged in plan, to throw themselves into a movement to destroy the stability of society through the use of violence. Earlier this week, a powerful leader in New York said, if we need to, we'll burn the country down to make our point. That kind of speech is the absolute antithesis of the man that he claims to follow, the one we esteem from the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King. That kind of speech used by that worker in New York produces followers who celebrate hate and revel and revenge. Why would a man lead like that? Why would he use his influence for killing and destroying? How did his thinking become depraved? Because he was taught by depraved people. At the highest level of instruction in our country today, in our universities, teachings like this are common 
coming out of the University of Missouri in the past two weeks, this interview. This comes from Dr. Tyrone Douglas as a professor at the University of Missouri. He says, I think it's important that we reframe the language. Key here. We're going to change the meaning of words. That's not true. Words are no longer true if they're changed in their meaning. I think it's important that we reframe the language that we use whenever we talk about riots and looting. Those terms are used to describe the legitimate discontent of the voiceless. So he just said we're going to reframe language to say that burning, shooting innocent people is legitimate simply because we're going to change the meaning of words. That's depraved. Then he goes on to say, there's an African saying, when a young person is not embraced by the village, they will burn it down to feel its warmth. And that's how a leader of our young people in universities all across the country justifies violence. That is depraved. So when I hear a quote like that, I just say, what's going on? Because that's a hopeless quote to me, if people feel like that. And I look in the book of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came in an age of unbelievable violence and oppression. And Isaiah said in his day, it was the same way. Isaiah chapter 5 Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil and who put darkness for light and light for darkness. So whether you're talking about the thinking of depraved leaders prior to the Civil War, pro-slavery, or you're thinking about depraved leaders now, pro-anarchy, the one thing they have in common is right there. Both of them call evil good and call good evil. More than ever, it is obvious that we are living in an upside-down world. Just last night, going to bed, read a report out of Minneapolis where the defund the police movement is, was started. In the three weeks since the city council said we need to rid the country of police, which is obviously a depraved statement knowing that Romans chapter 13 in the Scripture says the police are given to the government, to a nation, to society to protect us from depraved actions. So they, anti-God, anti-Scripture said, we don't want police. And in the three weeks since they made that statement by the city council, the city council has used 
$63,000 of taxpayer money in Minneapolis to hire private security because they need protection that was once given to them by the police. It is an upside-down world on all fronts. If you don't feel that, you're not praying, I'm certain. And in the middle of all of this hopelessness, whether it's a, our vulnerability to a virus or our vulnerability to racism and revenge, we're discovering that the world cannot manufacture hope. And that's why Paul said, you, believers, are the only people in the world that have been called to lasting hope. When Paul says you've been called to hope, he's never talking about the act of hoping. You hear this a lot with people. They think they have hope because they are in the act of hoping. Hope in the Bible is never about the act of hoping, but the object of what you're hoping in. Here's an example of the act of hoping. I hope my small business will survive COVID. <laughs> I hope we have a college football season. I hope this new recipe that I'm trying out tonight is a success. That is the act of hoping. That's not hope. Biblical hope is the object of the hope is so certain and so guaranteed it produces a joy over that which is certain. So what's certain? What is certain in this world that could possibly give us hope? Paul tells us. And one of the loveliest verses of the Bible, Titus 2, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is the will of God for your life today? Can't miss it. Self-control and purity of life. Control under the domain of Jesus Christ and holiness out of your love for him while in this dark, painful, messy, rotten world we wait for the return of history's king. It's called a blessed hope. Because everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ will see him face to face. And the Bible says at the moment we see him, we will be like him. And that is the only lasting hope for the world. You know, if I were an unbeliever living in this day and age... Let me tell you, church, as long as we're on this planet, this is what we're called to share. This is why this church is engaged in missions. 
here in the inner city and throughout the world. We're trying to tell people of the only hope that lasts, can never be taken away, the return of Christ for his church. If I were an unbeliever living in this day and age, looking at all the chaos and all the cruelty of this society, if I were looking at fires that have burned in every city, I would be frightened because I know that the hell that I see that's going on now is just a glimpse of what eternity will be like when God casts all unbelievers in a place where they're all together with no laws and no rule and no order. The Bible says the fires will never be quenched and the screaming will never be silent. If I were an unbeliever, I would look at this pandemic and I would look at this racially divided world And I would say, oh God, prepare me for the next world. I asked you a minute ago if you were honest in looking at hopelessness that comes when we look at a spreading disease. Hopelessness when we look at existing racial tension. I beg you to look at it. And to pray. The greatest thing you can do for your generation and your nation right now is to pray that God would send another revival to this world. But regardless of what He does, our now, our ultimate hope is what He will do later. Jesus will return for his church and he will establish his kingdom on earth and the government of the world will rest on the shoulders of one man, the Messiah, and his good and perfect rule will never come to an end. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you by means of our gathering in lots of places. We can kneel today and beg you for revival. Father, we took for granted that the virus would go away. We thought we could just outlast it, outresist it. And we need your help again. Father, we don't deserve help. We have not flocked in great throngs of worship to say thank you for the earlier mercies when the numbers decreased. We did not allow our vulnerability then to cause us to cast our arms to Christ and to say, save me, prepare me for the next world. Forgive us for presuming on you, O God. And Father, as we entered into this season, a sad season of such intense racial tension, 
we pray again for hope. The kind of hope that we celebrated from the man who was wrongly accused and the man who wrongly accused him. Reconciliation. Two men who became brothers through the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit. So we pray, God, that the bridge to heaven would be filled with all ethnicities bowing the knee to Christ, lifting arms to Christ, hating their sin, loving his grace, submitting to him as king, praising him for his goodness, looking forward to his eternal justice. O resurrected Jesus, O eternal spirit, O God our Father, would you grant a revival that binds us together in Christ to each other and to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.